One of the, uh, the most confusing things in learning any language is learning all the, the tenses of the, the verbs. And as native English speakers, we probably don't think about it that much, but, but take this word, stink. Depending on the, the tense, uh, it could be stink, could be stank, could be stunk, and it's really hard to keep straight when it is that you should be using either one of those words that, that describe the Grinch. Uh, did you know that in the English language, we have 12 tenses for our verbs? I mean, we have the three. We have past, we have present, and we have future. But within each of those, there's, there's four more. There's past, present. I'm sorry. There's past simple, past continuous, past perfect, perfect continuous, and the same for present and the same for future. Now, my plan is not to give an English lesson today because I would, I would flink, flunk the lesson myself. <laughs> flink, flunk, so. <laughs> flank. <clears throat> but I do want to talk about salvation. When we begin to look at, at God's word regarding salvation, what we quickly discover is that salvation has three tenses. It has the past tense, which is often how we think of salvation. But salvation is also referred to in the present tense, and it's also referred to in the future tense. So we have been saved through Christ. We are being saved through Christ. And the scripture talks about a day where we will be saved through Christ. Now, we've been conditioned, especially in an evangelical church, to, to think of salvation purely in terms of the past tense. Uh, maybe that, that decision that you made back when you were 15 years old at Camp Manitoba. That's how we think of salvation. That, that decision I made at some point in my life to, to follow Christ. Or if you were raised in the church, you maybe can't point back to a specific uh, event it's like asking a, a child, when did you learn how to speak? Like, they, they can't point to you one specific time. They, they've been learning their whole life. But, but you've got this, this growing up in the church, and at some point it became your own. That's how we typically think of salvation. But the scripture also talks about how we are currently being saved right now and how we will one day be saved so we are going to con continue and conclude our and sermon series uh, this morning with these words, saved and being saved. And since it's the last sermon, I'm going to, I'm going to add another and. Saved and being saved and will be saved. Join me as we pray. Father God, we pray that you would enlighten us, transform us, according to your word, so that we might know you, that we might love you, that we might follow you as we should. And may the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So everyone who is saved has a salvation story. If you are a Christian, you have a salvation story. And like I said, maybe it's a story of being raised in the church and you came to own that for yourself. 
Maybe you can point back to a specific moment where you placed your hope and trust in Jesus Christ. There's an actual day. Um, whatever your story is, it's a great story. But what we're going to see as we look at the scripture today is that our story is much larger than what we imagine. So we're going to start with salvation as a past event, uh, and we're going to look at someone who would describe it as a memorable moment. This was a moment in time where they stepped across the line. We're looking at Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He's gone to the guest of a sinner, to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. I want to begin with that very last sentence that Jesus spoke. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. I am struck by the clarity that Jesus had regarding his mission. Jesus was crystal clear as to why it was that he came to this earth. I came to seek and save the lost. Clarity about mission is so important. When you have clarity about mission, it serves as a guide for you. It helps you figure out how are you going to use the resources that God has entrusted to you. How are you going to use your time? How are you going to use your energy? How are you going to use the money God's entrusted you? When you have clarity, you're better able to to make difficult decisions often between what is good and what is best because you're clear about the mission. Another thing that clarity does is it gives everybody the opportunity to say, I want to be part of that, or I don't want to be part of that. In that way, clarity brings unity, and it allows others who don't want to be a part of it to, to kind of exit the, the bus. Clarity is like sharpening the edge of the axe so that with every swing of the axe, it's more efficient and more productive. Jesus had clarity. I came to seek and save the lost. His mission was and remains today crystal clear. And so what that means for us, if we want to join the movement, if we want to be a Christian, a Christ one, a follower of Christ, we want to be part of the church, what we're in effect saying is, I want to enlist in that mission. If you have no interest in that mission, then you really have no interest in what it is that Jesus is about. 
And so when we say, I want to be part of the mission, we're saying, I want to be a part of seeking and saving the lost. And so here's the question. I came to seek and save the lost. How difficult do you think it was for Jesus to seek out sinners? How difficult for us? Let's say we want to go out today and seek sinners. Is that a tough job? Every single person he encountered, right? Zacchaeus, up in the tree, is a sinner. But so too are all the people down crowding around Jesus in this parade that is passing by. When I go fishing, I throw my my bait into the water. And all the fishing jumping around me and my fish finder tells me that there's fish everywhere. In that sense, I can seek fish no problem. But sadly, not every fish wants to bite my plastic worm. So when we're going and and we're seeking sinners, we're, we're looking for sinners. Jesus is looking for sinners, but there's sinners that are of a certain type that he's looking for. Ones that are are hungry, where there's evidence already that the Holy Spirit is at work. Not every fish bites, or to use the the metaphor that Jesus said, you cast the, the seed widely, and everywhere it lands, it doesn't bear fruit. But a few fish bite, and some seed falls in fertile ground, and it bears fruit, Not every sinner is interested in Christ. We know that. But there are some who are. People like Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is drawn to Jesus. Historically, one of the interesting things we see it in the scriptures is that lost people, people who know they're lost, they're typically drawn to Jesus. The people who are not drawn to Jesus are people who don't realize they're lost who don't recognize that they have any need in their life. I'm good, they think. But lost people know that they have a need, and so they're interested in Jesus. And the incredible thing that we see in this passage is that even more interested is Jesus in them. Jesus is interested in lost sinners. And so Zacchaeus is so determined to see Jesus that he humiliates himself. He climbs up this tree to see Jesus marching by in the parade. But what he finds out is Jesus is more determined to see him. Jesus stops right under that tree, looks up, and says to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately because I must stay at your house today. This encounter is not a chance encounter. This is an ordained encounter written in God's book before this day ever happened. And then we see in the span of one sentence, Zacchaeus gets saved. He gets saved. After just a little time with Jesus, after this this little dinner church with Jesus, he becomes a new man, and things start to change for him. It's amazing what can happen when someone spends just a little time with Jesus. Do do you believe that today? Because I I think whether we believe that is true or not true is going to determine our passion for this mission. If in our heart of hearts we think there's no hope, then I don't think we're going to have the same zeal. We're not going to be as earnest for this mission. But 
If we believe that, you know what, no matter how hardened the sinner is, just a little time with Jesus can change the hardest of hearts, then I think we're going to be all in. A little time with Jesus, and Zacchaeus is a brand new man, and we see it because he now is giving to the poor. He's now repenting of his sin, of having cheated people, offering to pay back four times. What do you think happened during that little dinner date that he had with Jesus? Do you think they had a, a deep theological conversation? Did, Jesus, did Zacchaeus bring all of his questions to Jesus and Jesus answered all of them? Did Zacchaeus say the sinner's prayer? We have no idea what happened. But what we do know is that a little time with Jesus changed Zacchaeus' life. Today, Jesus said, salvation has come to this house. I was thinking about salvation and trying to think of of an analogy of salvation in the past tense. And I think a good analogy is, uh, if you're married, your wedding day. Your wedding day. On your wedding day, everything changed. You made vows, and someone made vows to you. To death do us part. On your wedding day, you entered into a union. The two became one. Your identity changed on your wedding day. You now had this title of, of husband or, or wife. You're no longer just your own, but you belong to another. And you become part of this new family, which gives you reason to leave some things behind from your, your life before you were married. Salvation is similar in so many respects. When you trust Christ as your Lord and your Savior, whether it comes at a a moment in time or whether it was a gradual process, the scripture says that you became a new creation. The old person is gone, the new person has come. You entered into a, a union with someone who said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You pledged your life to him. You become part of this new family. You leave some things behind in keeping with this new relationship. And your Savior pledges to forgive you of all of your past sins, all of your future sins. A wedding day is an amazing day. The day of our salvation is an amazing day. It's it's a wonderful day. It's a great day. The wedding day is a day to be remembered, to be celebrated. But it's not as good as the actual marriage. The wedding day is not as good as the actual marriage. If you think about it, a wedding day is really just a a means to an end. The wedding day is that inaugural event that starts a marriage. The end game is not just for a minister to stand up and say, I now declare that you are husband and wife, you may kiss the bride, and, and that's the end of the story. That's not the end. The end is actually the, the relationship that follows. And so it's, it's good for couples to remember their, their anniversary, to look backwards at that wedding day and to celebrate it and remember it. But anniversaries only come once a year. Can you uh, uh, imagine the, the couple that is trying to survive by just looking back at what happened in the rearview mirror? 
The day of our salvation, the day of your salvation was an amazing day. The story of, of your past salvation is a story to be cherished. It's a story to be looked back upon, to be remembered, to be celebrated. But that is not as good as it gets. And that's not where the story ends. That, that day of salvation was really just a, a means to something much greater. So what is the end? What's the end game of salvation? This is kind of a tricky question. Is the end game of salvation so that one day I can go to heaven? And sometimes I think that. We did the, the sermon Body and Spirit and we talked about how great heaven's going to be and, and it can be easy to think that that's, that's the end game, to, to get to heaven. Is the end game to be forgiven of my sin? Is the end game to have this, this title, Christian? No, in all of those cases, salvation is a means to an end, and the end is a relationship with God. The end is a relationship with God. Why am I excited to go to heaven? Because God's going to be there, and I'll be with God forever. Why am I so grateful to have my sin forgiven? because sin is what's keeping me from having a real relationship with my creator. Why do I want to have the title Christian? Because I want to be a child of God. I want to enter into a, a father-son relationship with my creator. So if you get saved, and it just stops there, and you're just looking back, but your salvation is not followed by a a growing relationship with God, we might ask, what's the point? We're no different than a, a man and a woman who's now declared husband and wife, and as soon as the wedding is over, they say, see you later. Your salvation story is and much, must be much larger than how it first began. So Zacchaeus disappears from the pages of Scripture. But I'm confident that his story didn't end there. When Jesus left his house, Zacchaeus, his salvation story continued. Unfortunately, we don't know how that all played out. But as we do look at Scripture, we see salvation also has a, a present tense component. So Paul writes a letter to the, the Corinthians. And in the very beginning of the letter, he says there's two groups of people. There are those right now who are in the process of perishing. And there are those who are in the process of being saved. Listen to what he writes. This is chapter 1, verse 18. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. So Paul reframes salvation not as this one-time event, but rather as this ongoing process, and he casts salvation in relation to what direction are you presently moving? Are you in a relationship with God that is presently drifting apart? If so, he'd say you're in the process of perishing. Or are you in a relationship with God where you are drawing closer and closer together? That is in the process of being saved. Again, the marriage is a great uh, analogy. 
We pop in on our couple 10 years later, and if we spend enough time with them, we could say they're drifting apart or they're drawing closer and closer together. A marriage is not meant to be static. Our salvation with God is not meant to be this static experience. It's a dynamic relationship, which means at any moment we're either growing closer to God or we're growing further away. And so this is why Paul writes to the Philippians, and and he writes this, and listen, we're going to hear all three tenses of salvation in this. He that began a good work in you, salvation in the past, I'm confident that he who began a good work in you will carry it on in the present to completion in the future, the day of Christ Jesus. So salvation in the the past tense, we know that it's completely dependent upon, upon God. It is only by the grace of God that we have been saved. Guess what? When we come to present tense, that this this ongoing work of salvation, again, it is only by the grace of God. If it wasn't for the grace of God, I would choose to exit the bus. It's the grace of God that saves me. It's the grace of God that keeps me. And later in his his letter to the Philippians, Paul makes this point even clearer. In chapter 2, verse 12 through 13, he says this. He says, continue to work out your salvation. That thing that you've experienced, continue to work it out with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. And so we've been saved, and now to work out that salvation, it's God that gives us the desire to, to work out of that that salvation. It is by the grace of God we have been saved. It's by the grace of God that we are being saved. And it's by the grace of God that one day we will be saved. Now, here's the interesting thing. When it comes to the New Testament, we have all been conditioned to think about salvation in the past tense. Do you know in the New Testament, it talks about salvation more often in the future tense. It talks about about how we should be forward-looking towards our salvation, not just looking back at something that happened a long time ago in the rearview mirror, but looking forward to the salvation that awaits. I'm going to give you a couple verses. Jesus sends out the, the 12 disciples, and he warns them that they're going to be persecuted, but then he says this, the one who endures to the end will be saved, will be saved. The Apostle Paul, here's a man with an incredible story of being blinded. Jesus speaking to him directly. He's got this incredible story in the past, but he too talks about salvation in the future. He said, we've been justified by his blood. How much more will we be saved by him from the wrath of God? Later he says, salvation is nearer to us now than than when we first believed. We're getting closer and closer to salvation than when we first believed. The author of Hebrews says it this way, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, he's going to appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. He's going to come back to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So here it is. We have been saved from sin's penalty. That happened in the past. Saved from the penalty of sin. In the present, we are being saved from sin's power. 
We've got that blanket on right now, and, and our lives are meant to be transforming. The power of sin should be having a, a less and less of a grip on our life right now. And, and as we move towards Christ, we should see transformation in one another. There should be change because we're in a dynamic relationship. We've been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin. And one day, we're going to be saved from the presence of of sin. Sin will be no more. And so until that day, what are we called to do? Press on. Press on. Work out this salvation. Let's not just be those who, who just celebrate an anniversary from time to time. We want to work out the salvation that's been gifted to us. We are saved and we are being saved and one day we will be saved all by the grace of God. Join me as we pray. Lord, all of this uh, is, is due to you and, and your work and your grace in our life. And Lord, apart from you, Lord, we would be lost. We'd be lost in the past sense, in the present sense, and in the future sense. So, Lord, we thank you that you save us. We thank you that you keep us. And as we're about to sing to close our service, Lord, it is so true. It is because you live that we can face tomorrow. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.